Welcome to Adapt Nation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have the charming and super insightful Dr. Jamie Seaman, aka Dr. Fit and Fabulous, joining us today. She specializes in female health and offers up a scientific and personal discussion on why she strongly advocates for an animal-based, low-carb lifestyle. It's a fun and informative interview, guys. Jamie is an OBGYN from Nebraska and has seen tremendous physical and wellness results personally over the last three years by embracing a ketogenic lifestyle. In actual fact, it's when she transitioned to a carnivore-ish diet that the benefits in health, body composition, and mental capability really, really took off for her. In actual fact, it's when her career online really took off as well. Jamie does a great job of representing women in what is a male-dominated cross-section of keto, carnivore, bodybuilding, and functional practitioning. She offers a compelling and exciting insight for other women to explore and is debunking many long-held nutritional beliefs. And in this episode, we get into Dr. Jamie Seaman's incredible and really insightful personal journey, what she has seen clinically through her practice over the years, and her certainty behind advocating women to try a low-carb keto or carnivore-style diet. We touch on some hot topics for many women around the globe, including pregnancy, hypothyroidism, post-pregnancy, failed glucose tests, menstrual cycle cravings, concerns with plant-based and low-fat diets, and much, much more. I think you're going to love Jamie, and you're going to really dig her great insights from a female's perspective. And if you do, please do us a huge favor and support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review in your podcast app. So let's get into it. Let's explore why Dr. Jamie Seaman feels so strongly about women experimenting with low-carb, keto, and carnivore-style diets. Alrighty, guys, today we have got an incredible woman on the show today. So we've got an OBGYN from Nebraska. She's a functional practitioner, an animal-based low-carb advocate, She's a model. She advocates weightlifting for women and she's connected in the keto and carnivore scene. She goes by the handle Dr. Fit and Fabulous on social media. So if you haven't guessed, uh, it is the marvelous, smart, talented, and refreshing Jamie Seaman with us today. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you for having me. That was a <laughs> wonderful intro. Well, it's just the truth. <laughs> I've heard of I've heard of you. I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half ago, um, maybe on Sean Baker's show, definitely on Porn Saladino's, as well as Brian Sanders. And as well as that, I've seen you on the, the documentary rebutting or um, debunking some of the game, change, game changer stuff with Brian Sanders. So you've really hit the scene, what felt like all of a sudden. How long has it been since you've really kind of been stepping up your social media presence? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've been on a very personal level ketogenic for about three years now and started kind of getting into this space really, you know, about two years ago. But really this last 365 days is, is it's really exploded. And really, I, I credit that to being a woman. I think that there 
is the need in this space for women's health and for women in particular, because we're not we're not just tiny men <laughs> and some of us aren't tiny, <laughs> but, um, I think it's just a much, a much needed gap that was there that I've just kind of jumped into and it's been exciting. It really has been fun and I love connecting with my followers and we have lots of things planned, uh, in the upcoming year as well. I think, uh, this is just the beginning of it all really. I, I totally agree. I think, um, it is a male dominated space, especially I think the low carb keto, because it, it has some male connotations um, to, you know, just the meat advocacy and, you know, less, less salad and more what looks like quite manly plates of food. But we're going to get into that in a moment. What would be great to talk about today, if you're game, is I'd love for you to share your personal story and your professional story. Uh, and more importantly, the impact your evolving nutritional choices have had to your health and performance. So if we can kind of dig into that for a little bit, Jamie, and then I'd like us to explore this animal-based low-carb lifestyle and how it relates to the female's point of view. Would that be good for you? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Well, then let's start, start from the top then. Um, where, where do you want to start in giving the audience a flavor of your professional and personal journey with food? Yeah. So let me just talk a little bit about like where I came from and how I ended up where I am now. So I live in Nebraska, right in the middle of the United States, born and raised in the Midwest. And the Midwest Midwest is it's beef country, but it's also corn country. <laughs> and I, I grew up as an athlete. So I was a three-sport athlete as a young girl, um, but I got away with eating pretty poorly because I was an athlete. And I eventually left high school and I went to college and I played softball for the University of Nebraska. And, you know, there I had access to nutritionists and exercise scientists and I was doing a lot of weightlifting and I was a two-time lifter of the year at Nebraska. But once again, I, I still, you know, I was getting a nutrition degree at the time, but I still didn't really quite understand how to fuel my body. And of course, through the course of studies with my nutrition degree, it was really you know, pounded into us kind of this idea of low fat nutrition and sodium restriction. And, you know, we talked about lots of different diets, but honestly, I'm not even sure I ever remember learning about low carb or, or ketogenic therapies while I was getting my nutrition degree. And I left the University of Nebraska to attend medical school. So I was finally done with my athletic career, kind of putting on a new hat per se, but that transitioned my life into sitting in the library for extended periods of time. And then during medical school, my husband and I um, decided to have our first baby. So I had three pregnancies in 60 months. And if you want the greatest physiologic test of your lifetime, you should try to grow a small human <laughs> inside your belly. And I failed. <laughs> um, it's an incredible amount of, <laughs> of cellular energy. Yeah. And physiologic changes. And we can talk about some of those, but I I failed my glucose testing during my pregnancy, all of them actually, and was diagnosed with hypothyroidism after my first pregnancy. So I was on thyroid replacement for, for my subsequent two pregnancies. And then after my third pregnancy, I'd had a, a horrible tragedy that had happened in my life and just kind of had this awakening with my own health. I found out I had prediabetes. So here I am with a medical degree and a nutrition degree, and I've got prediabetes and hypothyroidism. <laughs> so I just felt like as a medical provider, I really needed to kind of walk the walk and talk the talk per se. And so I 
set out on my own personal journey of figuring out how to fuel my body and how could I make myself the healthiest version of myself. And I started with kind of a, a whole foods approach and tried paleo for a little while. And basically after about a year, I had settled on, on the ketogenic diet. And I knew that it was something that would probably work because I had watched my own mother over my lifetime kind of yo-yo diet. But I know that when she had seen the most success, I mean, at one point my mom had lost a hundred pounds just through diet and exercise alone, but it was, it was through low carb. And I don't think she really understood what she was doing. I think she had kind of bought in to the Atkins craze and, and things like that. But my husband and I have been ketogenic over three years and over the last year and a half, mostly carnivore-based. Uh, I call it carnivore-ish. That's what Paul Saladino calls it for for me. And um, it's it's really heavy in animal um, nutrient-dense foods, but I do eat small amounts of, of plants and nuts and seeds because my gut can tolerate them and I just find it socially to be a little bit easier. Um, but my health is the best it's ever been. So my hemoglobin A1C is 4.9. Um, I'm no longer taking thyroid medication. I feel incredible. Of course, the body composition changes have been been great too. But honestly, I I think the greatest transformation is what starts as kind of fixing your diet really kind of transcends the rest of your life. You know, it's changed um, how I practice as a doctor. It's changed how I, you know, am as a mother and as a wife and and just as a human, the level of energy and the mental clarity that I have, I'm able to give so much more to the world. And it really just started with kind of, you know, fixing myself from the inside out. So let's talk a little bit about um, your hypothyroidism, if if you don't mind. So yeah. my wife struggles with Hashimoto's too. Um, she's had all the all the various tests. Uh, you can see all, there is an autoimmune response from her body. Um, and she's been on meds for a couple of years after probably being undiagnosed for a few years prior to that too. The, the 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 common narrative around that is once you have something like that, it's here to stay and it's progressive. Um, do you attribute putting that in remission and no longer needing medication to your diet, or would you would you say it's just getting out of the the hump of you know those changes of of, of being pregnant you know three times in a few years? Right. What how how would you yeah how would you kind of like give us some counsel as to how you got out of what seems to be a bit of a death sentence. Right. So basically when we talk about hypothyroidism, much more common in women, and there's really kind of the two biggest reasons, you know, worldwide why women have hypothyroidism. And that is either iodine deficiency, which is a common reason worldwide, but in the United States is a, is a lesser common, you know, reason Hashimoto's or autoimmune thyroiditis is a little bit more common. And I'm, I'm not a hundred percent certain the etiology of my own low thyroid function. I'm, if I had to guess with my, with my scientific brain, it was likely related to my horrible insulin resistance, which can be a, which can be a cause. Um, I never had my antibodies checked when I was originally diagnosed. So I don't know if I ever had elevated antibodies, but to this day I've had them checked and they're, they're normal. Now, when we think about autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's, um, yes, it is, you know, quote unquote, a death sentence because uh, we don't know of any cures for autoimmune conditions. But I think to say that it's progressive probably isn't the truth because mm -hmm. we know that autoimmune conditions can be um, 
controlled with, with lifestyle modifications. So when we look at Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism and what could a woman do, now there's lots of reasons. Let me just get back to the the statement I made that it's more common in women than in men. Um, there's a lot of theories as to how autoimmune conditions, not like Hashimoto's and like type 1 diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis and things like that began. And it can be stress. So like there's case reports with Hashimoto's in particular of like this young girl who was wheelchair bound and was accidentally thrown down a flight of stairs. And shortly after she developed Hashimoto's, um, so there can be, you know, very stressful events, life events that can occur that could uh, precipitate an autoimmune type reaction. Um, that also goes along for things like infections. So like a major illness could incite activation of the immune system. And then in women, we think about pregnancy. So pregnancy is an immunosuppressed state. Mm. So we see kind of this downregulation of, of B cells and, and T cells because you don't want your body to attack the growing pregnancy because half of your baby's DNA, you know, comes from your partner. So it's an immunosuppressed state. And then what happens is after you deliver the baby and the immune system turns back on, this is a very common time when women can develop autoimmunity um, with, with reactivation of the immune system. And then there is a little bit, you know, it's it's funny when we look at the placenta in pregnancy, right? It's this interface between a, a mom and her growing baby. And technically, the blood doesn't cross the placenta. You know, there's no mixing really of, of maternal and fetal blood. Um, <clears throat> but there's this exchange across the tissues of, of different nutrients and, and oxygen and things like that. Now, we do know that some of those placental cells do get into the mom's bloodstream because we now know that there are some genetic tests we can do during pregnancy to screen for chromosome problems with your baby. And it's it's placental DNA really that's circulating in the bloodstream. So there really is, uh, you know, some amount of, of cellular tissue and DNA that gets out into the bloodstream. And this could be the trigger for some of these autoimmune reactions. And so Pregnancy is definitely a big risk factor. Um, the other one is sex steroids. So um, the hormonal fluctuations that women have across their lifetime, um, estrogen and, and um, testosterone and progesterone, um, these also could contribute uh, somewhat to Hashimoto. So there's a variety of reasons why women are more likely to develop these conditions. But let's um, you know say a woman has been diagnosed and she's got elevated levels of antibodies. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that she has hypothyroidism. So typically what will happen first is that the antibodies will elevate. And then with time, as the antibodies start attacking the thyroid gland is when we start to see a reduction in function in thyroid function. So just because you have antibodies doesn't mean that you have low thyroid function. So the, the treatment of Hashimoto's isn't always replacement. So it's something where we're continually checking the thyroid function because if you've got elevated antibodies, but you still have normal thyroid function, um, you want to be checking it pretty regularly because at some point, um, if you don't control the antibody levels, then you, you certainly may need replacement. But let's talk about, you know, things that a woman could do that could impact her antibody levels, because that's kind of the ultimate goal really is to, like we said, it's not necessarily a death sentence, but it doesn't necessarily have to be progressive if you can figure out um, how to control it. Now, we may never figure out what the you know, inciting factor is. Like for your wife, I don't know her history, but um, just being a woman, there could be a lot of reasons why she has developed this. Um, so the first one, you know, everything in my practice, not just Hashimoto's, but everything in my practice, we always think about dietary interventions first. Um, the diet is super powerful because what we put inside of our bodies determines what fuel source we're using inside of our body. 
So for me, with a history of insulin resistance, um, I was definitely a glucose burner. (laughs) And um, if we can teach the body how to use an alternative fuel source like ketones, there's lots of, of benefits on a on a cellular level. So the reason that something like a ketogenic diet works for Hashimoto's is because when you use ketones compared to a glucose molecule, um, it's a cleaner burning energy source. So there's actually less oxidative stress on the body. So when we're talking about normal cellular metabolism, we're making less of these reactive oxygen species and um, that's less um, oxidative burden, you know, on the body. And so we can we can really shift to this cleaner burning energy source, and it may take a little bit of kind of stress off the engine per se. We also make more energy when we burn a ketone molecule. So when these little molecules go <laughs> into the mitochondria and go through the Krebs cycle, we actually make more ATP per molecule burned when you're talking about a ketone body versus a, a glucose molecule. And then the ketogenic diet is really anti-inflammatory. So I feel like uh, inflammation is kind of like the hot word, you know, here in 2020. Uh, you have so much inflammation and that's what's driving disease. And that is that is very true. And chronic inflammation uh, can be caused by lots of things. Um, it can be from your diet. It can be from your microbiome. It can be from, you know, low-grade infections. But for autoimmune conditions, um, eating an anti-inflammatory diet is super important. And and it may not necessarily be ketogenic for everybody, but if you look at, you know, different Hashimoto's protocols and things like that, almost everyone's going to describe some sort of paleo type diet that is that is devoid of things like gluten and soy and dairy. And those are because those things tend to be um, quite inflammatory for individuals with autoimmune conditions. And so the ketogenic diet, the reason I, I like it is because there was a study out in 2018 showing the mechanism by which the ketogenic diet can be anti-inflammatory. And that's because beta-hydroxybutyrate, the most active ketone in the bloodstream, actually inhibits um, something called the NLRP3 inflammasome, <laughs> which is a which is a protein in the body that's a major driver of inflammation. And so basically what what people need to hear, you don't have to understand all the all the little letters and numbers and things like that, but having ketones in your bloodstream is very anti-inflammatory. And then for people like myself with a history of of insulin resistance or glucose intolerance is when you eat a ketogenic diet, you really regulate blood sugars. And we know that hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia are major drivers of inflammation, cardiovascular disease, neurologic disorders, cancer, I mean, you name it. So any diet that is able to improve your glycemic variability and keep your insulin low is going to be very helpful um, in the long term. And then we do know that people with with, um, autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's tend to experience a lot of neurologic symptoms like fatigue, brain fog, more anxiety, more depression, trouble with sleep. And so we know that the ketogenic diet helps with these things by giving the brain an alternative fuel source. Um, so there's lots of reasons why, why diet can really help in these situations. And it really should be the first line therapy for these patients because it is something that they can control. You know, we may never figure out why, why they um, have Hashimoto's in the first place, but I always say, let's control the controllables. (laughs) That's what I, that's what I talk about when I, when I talk to patients and it's not necessarily just diet. You know, we know that other things, and we don't have to dive into these, but the way that you exercise, the way that you reduce stress, whether it's through breath work or meditation, um, 
and even our environment. So like the things that we put on our skin, even like for women, you know, cosmetics and lotions and shampoos, all of these things could be contributing um, to the burden of your autoimmune disease. Mm. Now, I, I think, well, that sounds compelling in the argument you've given for a ketogenic diet. And as I kind of just reflect on hypothyroidism, I, is, is, there, is there clinical experience, whether it be through, through um, clinical studies or in your own personal anecdotal experience working with uh, your patients, have you seen control of hypothyroidism slash Hashimoto's with a low-carb diet? Yeah, I have. I've seen, um, I, I use, it depends on what their insulin sensitivity is. So it's either typically a more like animal dense paleo approach versus more of a ketogenic approach. And that is just strictly based on um, how many carbs they're able to tolerate. But I've seen good control of antibody levels. I have seen people who have been able to reduce or stop um, medication use. And then I've had patients too with um, infertility or subfertility where um, they've been able to achieve a pregnancy, you know, without the use of additional medications. So I've, I've definitely seen it clinically. And then, you know, like I said myself, I don't know that I necessarily had Hashimoto's, but I, I've been off thyroid medications for over three years now. Okay. Okay. I mean, it does sound absolutely compelling. I've, I've for one, have been an advocate of a low carb, but not ketogenic, not, not for any other reason than just hedonistic reasons, I guess, more than anything else. <laughs> but, you know, we do eat carbs. We had, we had a bunch of carbs over the weekend. But, you know, Monday through Friday, for the most part, you know, we're, we're following a relatively low carb. Probably 90% of our diet uh, is animal, animal-based nutrition and say 10% is carbs. And that might, for me, be 80 to 100 grams of carbs a day because I, I eat quite a bit. Um, That's still pretty low carb for for a man <laughs> that yeah. has good muscle mass, though. Yeah. No, exactly. So I'd say it's relatively low, but I, I wouldn't say I'm strict. I've never tested my my ketone levels, but so I'm I'm completely convinced that it offers cognitive, uh, immune, and just general wellness benefits going in on this diet. But there are many people that aren't convinced. There are many people that are still of the um, institutional wisdom or or kind of perpetuated guidance around low fat uh high plant-based diets and of course you know we're batting up against uh the craze of of the vegan movement right now which is you know continuing to explode uh, across the world and especially here in the uk so this sounds compelling at first blush but the, i think as people start to try and navigate this logically it's that they stumble because their GPs, the hospitals, you know, general guidance they'll hear everywhere is counter the messaging you're given and is very much an advocate of minimizing meat and increasing plant-based material in your diet. So what what do you say to to that? How how do we how do we support and encourage a low-carb diet and, and more importantly, an animal-based low-carb diet being something good for health? Yeah. So when you look at the recommendations that were made, um, I understand what a difficult position this puts a lot of people in because I'm a highly educated consumer, right? I'm a consumer too, just like my, just like my patients are. And I have a nutrition degree and a medical degree. And here we have these recommendations, you know, since the 1980s that, that said we should eat a low fat diet. And what happened when we made those recommendations is we, 
replaced those calories with ultra-processed carbohydrates. And now we've seen more than triple the rates of cancer and cardiovascular disease. So clearly those those recommendations were not uh, <laughs> bound by science, right? We've looked at the politics behind them and a lot of them were paid for. I think people need to understand that there's a lot of corruption in government and that you can, you can really buy recommendations these days. And that is... Uh, a little disheartening as a medical provider, right? Because I am supposed to be practicing evidence-based medicine based on these recommendations. And mm-hmm. and some of them just really aren't sound science. So when we look at nutritional research, a lot of the bad rap that protein and meat and things like that get in the diet is all based in these epidemiology studies. And they're not great studies. Um, a lot of them require a patient to remember what they ate in the last year. And I don't know about you, but I could probably hardly tell you what I ate two days ago. Well, mm-hmm. I can tell you because I eat a lot of the same things, but <laughs> I think it's here, difficult. No, yeah, I, mean, I, think, <laughs> I think it's difficult to, you know, to say that, that these are, there's so much, so many confounding variables. You know, when we look at people who eat hot dogs, they're more likely to smoke. Um, just because that there's correlation doesn't mean that there's causation. So a lot of people like to use the example. There's this great graph that circulates the internet, but showing that ice cream sales go up in the summer and so do murders. So is, is it that more people eat ice cream and that makes people more likely to murder people? Probably not, right? Those things are not, not necessarily um, causation, even though they might be correlated. So I think people need to take, um, first of all, the nutrition research that's been done with a grain of salt. And the other thing when we talk about the ketogenic diet is that the majority of studies that have been done have not been done in people who are ketogenic, and it is a different physiologic state. So that's been the hardest part is kind of coming into this space the last couple of years is we don't have tons of studies, but they're coming. They they are coming. And the reason that I feel kind of like the black sheep sometimes is because traditional scientific recommendations, when you publish something like that in a journal, it can take up to 17 years to translate into clinical mm-hmm. practice. Well, my myself and my patients don't have 17 years to wait. So we've really had to be, you know, a, a little bit of a rebel kind of in this space with let's let's try something new. Like this is broken, let's try something new. And I always tell my followers will know this. I say you need to be your own expert. You didn't ask your doctor permission to eat cheeseburgers and donuts all day. <laughs> so why are you suddenly asking if you can have, you know, steak and salmon and eggs <laughs> and and salads, you know? I mean, it's like it's kind of ludicrous, right? So um I think, you know, when we talk about carnivores and and vegans and kind of this huge struggle that's happening on social media, first of all, I think the one thing that we all agree on is that reading, eating real whole foods is probably a better approach, right? So everybody agrees that cutting out processed, ultra-processed foods is, is more important for your health, right? So then the question is, if we're left with whole foods, then how is one to eat? Well, I think that there there clearly is still a very large political agenda with with plant based plant based and vegan movements, and I'm not telling anybody that they that they can't do that. Um, everybody is uh, their own decision maker at the but end of the day. There are agendas, right? And it's not yeah, purely no. your your health as an individual. Right. Right. Exactly. And so, um, but my biggest fear with kind of this this plant based movement is that when we look at health and longevity, um, one thing that is that is super important in protecting your metabolic health, especially for women um, as you age and you start to go through menopause, is maintaining your lean body mass. So we've been told, you know, for years and years and years, um, 
to maintain a healthy body fat, to have a normal body mass index, right? But nobody's really determined how much muscle should one person have. And there's pretty clear evidence that as you age, the more muscle you have, it's very protective to your metabolism and your metabolic health. Mm -hmm. So my fear with this plant-based movement is that we already have people that are under-consuming protein. And then you do this fear-mongering around things like meat and beef and things like that. And people will just start to consume less and less protein in the diet. And a whole food plant-based diet doesn't necessarily mean a normal glycemic variability. I did a kind of a N of one experiment this last year with a continuous glucose monitor, just showing people the differences in my glycemic variability, eating carnivore versus eating ketogenic versus eating a whole food plant-based approach. And for people with insulin resistance, which is like 88% of America <laughs> almost, um, you know, this type of approach could be extremely harmful. And so I see what we're going to see is we're going, you know, we've already seen this tripling of, of cancer and cardiovascular disease. We're going to see people move to this whole food plant-based approach, which will just be a mask of, of continuing to eat crap <laughs> because people won't do it. I already know. I've, I already see it on a day-to-day -day clinical basis. And, and we just will not see any impact on disease reduction in our country. We just won't. Um, it's all politically funded. Um, it's, it's sad is really what it is. And so the people, uh, like us just need to not be quiet about it. And for me, it's, it's just being an example. I'm very transparent. I put my numbers out on the internet. Here's my cholesterol. Here's my numbers. Here's my body composition. And, um, I think people just need to lead by example. I mean, that's, uh, I'm, I'm applauding other people in this space, like Dr. Baker and Dr. Saladino, and and really putting our our necks out there. But um, animal foods are high in protein; they have more bioavailable nutrients. And for women, especially in their fertility years, um, we need diets that are are heavy in cholesterol and choline and fat soluble vitamins and a completely vegan or plant-based approach could be really detrimental for this population. If you if you go looking, you can find some of the the generative uh, impacts of long-term, you know, non-cheating vegan diets. I mean, it's you know you can see it either with within your friends or your kind of social community. Definitely, definitely can see it online if you go looking of what seems to what seems to epitomize. You know the frame, the bone structure, skin, teeth of someone who's decided to go vegan long term. Now they may be whole whole food based. They may be including processed. And I think, as you said, I think it's hard, very hard to go uh, whole foods and purely vegan, just because I think we've got cravings and needs, and and those are met through some other processed stuff. Even tofu, the way we consume it today is is highly processed. The stuff that we buy here in the UK is. So, I mean, it, it isn't too difficult to at least hear an alternative perspective if you go looking, but this stuff doesn't find you. You know, what finds you is, is the continuing narrative that more salad, more vegetables, you know, don't go five vegetables a day. Let's go to 10 now and, you know, make sure you get enough chia seeds and spinach and cow and all of this stuff. Do you, when, when you think about your diet, you say you, you, you're not purely carnival, you have other stuff. Um, do you have any concern or actually let's put it another way? What's your level of certainty for you as an individual 
that you're doing the best you can and you're not missing out on valued nutrition because you're minimizing your plant foods. Right. So the one thing that I, the advantage that I really have is I have very available testing. So I've been able to try lots of different ways of eating. And then I've been able to judge on a biochemical level, you know, what do my markers look like? What do my inflammatory markers look like? How is my thyroid function? Mm -hmm. What's happening with my glucose and my lipids? And then on a, on a more subjective level, what is my energy like? What is my, you know, how does my body feel? Um, I have that advantage of that, of that testing. Um, I'm, I'm very certain that the way that I eat right now is the best thing for my health and for my longevity. Um, and I've, it's been a process. It hasn't been something I've just discovered overnight. I think that you kind of have to be your own expert because the way that it works for me is not necessarily what works for you. I think we're all made from different blueprints and it looks differently for everybody. But I think at the core of it is, is real whole foods and nutrient dense animal foods at the bottom of the pyramid. And if you can tolerate plants, if you don't have autoimmune conditions, if your gut is in a good place, um, I think that that is, is an okay thing. But I think that for certain individuals, this concept of anti-nutrients is, is a real thing. And it's definitely not acknowledged by the medical community right now. I mean, it is in a way, you know, we talk about like FODMAP diets and things like that and certain elimination diets, but something like a carnivore diet is like the ultimate elimination diet. Absolutely. And, and when people mention things like lectins, gluten, oxalates, that's meant with a scornful look. Uh, you know, this is just quackery. And I, I see it all over the internet from, you know, quote unquote nutritionists that have been traditionally educated. They say, well, there's just, there's no science to support this. So uh, everyone who's talk, who's, you know, pushing this idea of oxalates are bad for you. They're just talking out of their ass. Like that's what, that's the, the response you get. And it can be quite damning when you're in that debate, whether it be online or face to face, to be able to push back on that and give the evidence because the evidence is slight, right? So how, how do you think about that? When you think about anti-nutrients, whether it's, you know, lectins, uh, other phytonutrients, whether it's oxalates, uh, gluten, do you, uh, do you feel strongly that these are, for the most part, things we should avoid or at least control and minimize? Well, I think that it's it's very individualized. So for instance, I always give the example, you know, when people people have heard, you know, eat your fruits and vegetables, eat your fruit and vegetables. Well, what happens when you walk through a patch of poison ivy, right? You get this horrid rash. Like to say that plants are completely benign um, is, is kind of an ignorant statement. Mm. Um, even things like people think that essential oils are quackery, but there's studies that have shown that like use of lavender oil it's an estrogen mimicker and it can cause gynecomastia in young boys and young girls. So even things like essential oils are not benign. Plants are not benign. Plants are a species and their job is to perpetuate themselves for all time. So to say that they're completely benign is just a, is just an untrue statement. But does that mean that there aren't good things that come from them? Um, they do. They do contain nutrients. When we look at the bioavailability, though, animal foods are more bioavailable um, and in the form that you need them, right? We don't have to like convert them like we do some plant sources. Like for instance, let me give you an example why I think that that my diet really is the best one for me. I've done some um, 
genetic testing and I carry a gene where I don't convert things like EPA and ALA into um, the correct <clears throat> fatty acid form to be used in my brain. So I eating foods like salmon roe and beef and eggs and things that have uh, DHA in them um, are better for me. So I think that's where it gets back to being a very individualized approach. Um, but but plants are not right for everybody and not in the amount that we are recommending them. And do you, do you miss having as much plant-based foods in your diet, whether it be processed, minimally processed or not processed at all, right? So loads of salad, uh, you know, loads of colors on your plate, you know, peppers, having, you know, potatoes, sweet potatoes, you know, the starchy stuff, the asparagus, the broccoli, you know, I can make a list of things that people go, yeah, that, that's good. Usually it's good with loads of butter and a bit of meat. But anyway, <laughs> people, yeah. you know, the, the, these foods are, you know, purported to be very healthy, superfoods, you should have them as often as you can, or at least some of the things I've just stated. Yeah. Do you miss well, when them? I When I went, so it was what year is this? 2020. When I went carnivore, so I did a 30 day, like 30 days of strict carnivore is how I kind of started my approach to carnivore. And that was in November of 2018. And it was probably about between that 14 and 21st day of doing it that I really, that I missed it, but I missed plants from a texture standpoint. Mm -hmm. So like I just wanted a crunchy salad. It was just really more of a texture thing than anything. And when I added them back in, in December, after I had done kind of this, this 30 day approach, which by the way, I lost like eight or nine pounds and it was almost all fat. I did body composition testing. I mean, it was incredible actually how I felt because I had already been ketogenic for, you know, like two years. Um, but when I added plants back in, um, I started to get more like bloating and discomfort and, mm -hmm especially with just like a really big, like leafy green salad, like mixed greens. And so then I, I actually was very in tune with my body as to like which vegetables didn't make me feel horrible. And I don't want to say they made me feel horrible, but I just was so in tune with how my body felt. Um, and that's why I've kind of settled on this, what I call carnivore-ish approach is that every meal has some, some protein, you know, steak, chicken, salmon, you know, wild caught salmon, eggs, and, and then small amounts of plants. Um, like I posted my dinner last night, I had some mixed vegetables with my steak and some mushrooms. And But it's not the main portion of my nutrition. It's, it's really some added texture, um, some, a small amount of added nutrients with the least amount of anti-nutrients possible. Yeah. And it's still something that makes me feel okay, right? I'm not going to eat something that makes me feel horrible. But um, but I do miss just the, you know, the variety and that's why I have small amounts of it. I just feel like it, it fits better for my lifestyle. That way it's allowed me to be social. I can go to restaurants and family gatherings and don't feel like I'm being super restrictive. Do you know what? You, you, you're preaching to the converted. We, we eat probably identically to that. Yesterday we had a nice lamb shank. We had some halloumi, which is a nice kind of Greek cheese. We had some taramasalata. Um, we had a couple other bits and then there was a bit of salad and, I must admit, I don't think I could do without salad. I don't have it every day. I have it probably once a week, but every once in a while, that kind of like watery, as you say, crunchy texture to balance the heaviness, the richness, the denseness of animal-based nutrition. For me, I, feel, I couldn't do that. I'm Greek personally, and that is the Greek tradition. You know, you have, you know, some, some kind of meat, red meat or fish, you have a small amount of starch, and then 
some salad on the side and that just works and i i would i would hate to advocate that we should be avoiding that in in totality but you're right to say that some people would benefit greatly at least starting some elimination diet excluding that to see as you've rightly said how do you feel after you take this stuff away and then you put it back because i i absolutely i'm i'm on the same page now i reintroduced a lot of broccoli and i used to have broccoli every day because it was a amazing for you apparently right and they used to have loads of sweet potato because it was really good for you and now when i do that if i go too heavy it yeah i feel it i feel it yeah just bloat you know toilet situation isn't nice and it just felt i just feel a little bit funky and it ain't worth it anymore for me yeah and the interesting thing too is back in the day when i was really taking a low-fat approach um i would have these big salads right you know eat the rainbow and What's interesting when we look at things like our fat-soluble vitamins, like A, D, E, and K, there's this great study that I love to quote that looked at vitamin A or lycopene absorption from a a big colorful salad. And when you put a low-fat dressing on the salad, you don't absorb very, very many of these nutrients that that you're consuming for that benefit, right? But when you put some olive oil and some healthy fats on the salad, you absorb them like tenfold. So people who are taking a plant-based approach that are eating low fat, you're wasting a lot of salads. <laughs> you're not getting all the nutrients you even need to get. Or well, Sally Fallon-Morel has been on, on the podcast and she says exactly that. She'll talk about certain vegetables and say, oh, broccoli is great because it's a, uh, what's it called? It's like a vehicle for butter. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I think it's such a great idea because I, I wouldn't have, you know, I, we like a bit of broccoli every once in a while, but we're having broccoli cheese, which is loads of cheese over it and it's perfect. Uh, you're getting the best of both worlds, right? But I, I, I completely understand what you're saying around the fat soluble vitamins and you need fat with those vitamins if you're going to be able to yes. absorb them. You need to put fat on your vegetables. Got it. Got it. So why don't we just spend a moment or two talking about some of the, the the myths or, or, or actually not say myths, concerns people have. So especially for, um, for, for ladies, uh, you know, I speak a, a lot around, you know, the idea of maybe experimenting with a lower carb diet, which inevitably means I'm going to recommend they have a lot more animal based nutrition. And that can be quite jarring when I have that conversation with certain people who haven't really kind of cottoned on to the why behind this. You know, the things they'll say to me is, you know, fat is fattening. Surely I can't do that. Where's all the vegetables? This just sounds crazy. You know, it sounds man, manly, generally speaking. And the default is when these ladies go on a diet, and when most of us go on a diet, quite frankly, we think we have to just, you know, lean in on the salads. So th- there's a lot going on here. And then on top of that, you've got the hormonal fluctuations of, of a menstruating woman and, you know, the cravings that hit them at certain points of the month where they feel the absolute necessity to have carbs in their life. So I've thrown a lot at you just there, but can we just maybe unpick a few of those as to, you know, to try and give some a counterpoint to some of these concerns? Yeah. Well, so first of all, where where fat kind of got vilified, I'll be the first to admit that back when I was trying this low fat approach, I literally used to eat hot tamales candies because on the front of the box it said low fat. <laughs> <laughs> and so what we did is we really vilified fat, you know when it really was the carbohydrates and and the sugars and things like that in the diet. So first of all, just reminding them that um, what really is driving a lot of their weight gain issues and their hormonal issues and their craving issues is not fat, but it's it's really uh, glucose and carbohydrates in the diet. And when you talk about 
uh, you know, does fat make you fat? Um, that's what they pounded into us for, for a long time. But there have been studies that have compared head-to-head a ketogenic diet versus a low-fat diet because you can, you can lose weight on a low-fat diet. You can. You can lose weight by creating uh, a calorie restriction. But when we look at hormonal profiles, when we look at um, long-term adherence and things like that, the advantage that a, that a ketogenic diet has is that fat is very satiating it makes food taste good. It makes you feel fuller longer. And we need fat in our diets. Um, our brains, our cells, the membranes of our cells, our sex hormones are literally made from fat. And so it does take a while to kind of relearn and retrain our brains around this idea that fat is very good for us. But um, it's uh, it can be hard for women. Um, first of all, because if you take a steak, for instance, you used the word like manly. <laughs> and it is true. Women traditionally aren't um, good at eating protein and meat like men are. The carnivore diet, like I remember going to my husband, I'm like, we're going to try this carnivore diet. And he was like, I'm all in, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want me to eat steak for 30 days? Okay. Um, so a lot of it is just women kind of, you know, retraining their brains. And it's that, social. that it's social conditioning, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, that when we talk about kind of our habits and, and things like that, it can take almost 60 days to kind of rewire our brains and, and our way of thinking and things like that. And so um, I get where women are coming from, but what women will find is that by eating um, these foods that are higher in proteins and fats and lower in carbs um, is that it really can help, especially women who are, you talked about some of these hormonal fluctuations, women who are perimenopausal or menopausal as our estrogen levels decline, um, we tend to see an increase in insulin resistance and an increase in the deposition of fat inside of our bellies. That's called our visceral fat, which is around our organs. And this is a period of time in a woman's life where it would be very important to to restrict sugar and, and carbs and things like that. So that's one big myth is that, you know, women, uh, that fat makes you fat. And that's... Um, just completely untrue. Now, now the other thing that women need to hear though, is that a traditional ketogenic approach of like 20% protein, 70% fat, isn't necessarily the approach that all women need to take with a ketogenic diet. I find for my patients and clients, if you don't need, if you are not a small child with epilepsy that needs a certain level of ketones so that you don't have a seizure, taking uh, more of a, a moderate fat and a moderate protein approach, um, which is kind of what carnivore is, right? Uh, Depending on what cuts of of meat you're eating, uh, women tend to see a little bit more success with that. It's very hard to get, it's very hard to gain weight with excessive amounts of protein. Um, And with a ketogenic diet, that can be one thing that kind of scares people. If I eat too much protein, it's going to kick me out of ketosis. But uh, like you said, you've never even tested your ketone levels. And and for most people, I don't necessarily recommend it. because women become less efficient at digesting protein as we age. So do men for that matter. But you actually need more protein as you age um, per kilogram of, of lean body mass. Um, okay, what was some of the other myths that we need to talk about? So, yeah, actually, I didn't mention it. But what about cholesterol, right? That's, that's oh, a biggie. Yeah, yeah. So what will happen on a ketogenic uh, diet or if you start to increase dietary fat intake is that most of the time what is going to happen, and this has been shown in the studies, I'm not, this is not necessarily anecdotal, um, is the triglycerides, which are, are the fat in our bloodstream, will go down. The HDL, or the quote-unquote good cholesterol, will go 
up. And then the LDL, which is traditionally been called the bad cholesterol, about a third of the time it will go up, about a third of the time it will stay the same, and about a third of the time it may go down. And But what's happening, we call this like pattern A lipids, what's happening with these LDL particles uh, or the, the LDL in our bloodstream is that they're becoming a bigger, fluffier LDL particle and not the small, dense, hard LDL particles that can cause um, atherosclerosis or build up a plaque. And the other thing is it's not just, I mean, to just say that the LDL number is correlated with cardiovascular disease is not true. Um, We need inflammation, we need hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia to drive those LDL particles underneath the arteries in our in our bloodstream. And so I have had this phone call numerous times from patients um, that I, I started this diet and my cholesterol has gone up and my doctor has convinced me I'm going to have a heart attack in the next year mm-hmm. and I've got to stop this diet. Well, it's very normal when you eat more fat to see more fat in the bloodstream, you know, or more, more cholesterol, but that's not, you know, this is another thing that we're going to have to, you know, correct is that people have always believed that your cholesterol number was directly correlated with your cardiovascular risk. And what we're seeing is that's not true. It's, it's a, it's a bell curve, just like most things are in, in life. And the people at the very, very low end and the very, very high end are the people who are most at risk. And so, first of all, you need a more advanced lipid panel to really see what's going on, something called like a cardiac lipid panel or an NMR lipid panel. So your traditional lipid panel doesn't really give you all the information. You also want to look at the inflammation markers. And then if you do really have high LDL particles, um, you should do something called a coronary artery calcium scan, which actually looks at the level of atherosclerosis burden in the coronary arteries or to look at the um, carotid arteries as well, carotid intimal thickness. So there's lots of other testing if you are concerned about your cholesterol, because there could be people listening right now that have pre-existing um, cardiovascular disease, and those people, you know, should be should be watched and monitored. But for the vast majority of people, just having your cholesterol go up does not mean that your risk of cardiovascular disease is going up, especially in the face of no inflammation and and normal blood sugar and normal insulin levels. I'll, I'll actually reference to a conversation I had with Dave Feldman, who's got an interesting hypothesis about you know, what's going on in our bloodstream, which um, I think he, he might be onto something. I know there's some challenge in the community with what he's saying, but it's uh, it's a refreshing take on, as you say, the you know the trifactor of um, lipids and exactly how they're moving in response to a high fat diet. Um, are you concerned about your lipid panel around how you're eating? Uh, well, so my, I'm in the camp actually where my cholesterol went down. <laughs> so, oh, okay. um, I'm, I'm like the misnomer. So I adopted a ketogenic diet and then went more carnivore based and my cholesterol has continued to kind of trend downward, which is interesting, right? I've always wanted to like ask Dave and Dr. Nadira Lee what's going on with my cholesterol, but my total cholesterol is in the one seventies and my LDL, um, last I checked was like, uh, in the eighties to nineties range, my HDL is high. My triglycerides are super low, you know, like less than 40. Um, so actually I'm kind of worried about my LDL because I know that the literature shows with that high LDL is actually more protective to your brain. So (laughs) I'm actually worried about my LDL, but I don't think I can eat more steak. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'm not adding, I'm not adding carbs back in. I already know what that did to my hemoglobin A1C. So, um, so I, my, my lipids aren't the best example, but I've seen patients, you know, with LDL cholesterols of 400, 500 or higher. And the inflammation markers are normal. We get a coronary calcium scan. The score is zero. That you know they have normal blood pressure, they have normal everything, you know. So, um, what are you to do with these patients? Um, we don't have, you know, we don't have a lot of literature. Um, but um, I think that there's some genetic susceptibility. And yes, Dave Feldman uh, has done some amazing work and, and talks and things like that. And um, there's other people in that space, you know, Dr. Brett Schur and Dr. Nadir Ali and, yeah. and all these people who are are giving their expert opinions. And I think it's important because we do see, you know, a wide, a wide range of things happen with the lipids, um, with these different nutritional approaches. I think it's fascinating. And I also think it's just going to be, it's button against, um, many, many players and, and forces that don't want it to be true. And therefore I think, you know, the, the small voice of Dave Feldman, Nadir Ali is being drowned by, uh, the institutional wisdom and the institutional need uh, to not be proved wrong. And I know that sounds, you know, it sounds like as if, you know, I'm just trying to be a cons- conspiracy theorist, but you know, I think there's some legitimacy in those statements. And, and I encourage people that listen to, you know, have a critical mindset and go challenge these ideas and actually go explore the alternative worldviews to yours at the moment, because there there is literature and there are people making some very, very valid claims that, you know, some of the things that you've been led to believe aren't, aren't correct. Um, I'll get off my soapbox now. I'm going to ask you one, one last question, uh, which is about just generally uh, cravings for carbs. So, you know, I'll speak to many women who say that you know that there is there is a time there's a time in a month when carbs are just very much a part of their life, and the idea that I'm we're going to pull it out, uh, pull carbs out at the, you know the beginning of their their menstrual cycle might might be something they can do because they can tolerate they've got you know kind of like kind of menstrual strength kind of thing you know they're going they're in the right frame of mind to try new things try new diets and then as we kind of you know creep towards the back end of their their menstrual cycle things start you know life starts testing them (laughs) and their menstrual cycle starts testing and their their hormonal levels start going in a way which are forcing them to make other decisions and you know there is there is some literature to suggest that you know the, the demands for glucose increase so how do you how do you how do you respond to that kind of physiological hormonal craving based need for carbs in your diet at that time of the month well when you think about it physiologically why that's happening so basically in the first two weeks of the menstrual cycle we're very estrogen dominant and women you're right they're able to stick to their diet they're doing great in the gym they're recovering great and then after ovulation, when it becomes more progesterone dominant, um, we start to see more blood sugar dysregulation, more cravings. Um, they they can't stick to their diet. And when you think about this physiologically, you know the egg gets released, the corpus luteum starts secreting progesterone, and your body is anticipating a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Every single month, your body in a normal menstruating woman who's not on birth control is anticipating a possible pregnancy. So there's reasons why women feel this way. Now, if you're not planning to get pregnant, (laughs) um, I think first of all, just teaching women how their body works, just because you have, I think it's very funny. We always talk about, you know, at some point in your life, you should be able to eat intuitively. And I tell all my female patients, this is just BS (laughs) because if we ate intuitively, I, because I'm a woman and I know how that feels. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it, we're not. We're emotional eaters. We're very attached to that dopamine response. And carbs for certain individuals can be extremely addictive. And I know this has been debated, you know, is sugar addicting and things like that. Um, there's a clear dopamine response that happens and it does, it is a form of stress relief for women. And for some women, avoidance is important. For some women, adding whole food carbs in during this period is okay if they're insulin sensitive and insulin sensitive. But um, to say that every woman needs carbohydrates in the luteal phase of their menstrual cycle isn't isn't necessarily good sound advice, um, especially in a woman who's not you know trying to get pregnant. So um, it's an unfortunate thing for women. We're very complex biological creatures. There are going to be times of the month where your hunger and satiety hormones are against you. <laughs> but, but these but are no nutritional. Sorry to this. Just yes. So you're is asking there, if there's biologically there a, a reason why they should consume more carbs. Absolutely. Is there a nutritional need that is driving the craving other than, as you say, the hormonal kind of uh, anticipation of like fueling you know, the growth of, of a little baby? Yeah, no, there's, there's otherwise no, no reason why you need additional carbohydrates during this, during this time. I've had women ask me, you know, can I fast during my menstrual cycle and and things like that? Um, certainly there's fluctuations that are happening, but to say that there's, you know, a, a higher need for glucose in the diet is, is kind of untrue really. It's, I mean, there's no science really to show that. Okay. Okay. So if people can, what, no, what, what your recommendations to combat you know if, if someone's transitioning to a lower carb diet and they're doing really great in the first couple of weeks and then as as, as we've just said things get a little bit tricky hormone hormones are kind of playing against us how how does a woman handle those cravings do they just cave in or or, or do you have any techniques to to maintain a commitment to a lower carb or a keto diet whilst getting through those cravings in the first few months of this transition yeah, the first few months are hard when you're really trying to adapt the body, but we do know that um, having ketones in the bloodstream is great at inhibiting ghrelin, which is our hunger hormone. So a low-carb approach is actually more beneficial for these women because a lot of times it can in- inhibit some of these hunger hormones and, and increase their satiety. Um, but part of it too is is women who are coming into this with what we call leptin resistance. So leptin is the hormone that tells us when we're full. Um, it can take months to fix, you know, leptin resistance and things like that. So women just have to be patient, but I think this is a great time to consider intermittent fasting, um, and things like that, or using other techniques to help with satiety, whether it's like bone broth. Um, there's lots of different kind of, you know, tricks that I use with women, but I think really teaching them how their body works and just being in tune with their body and why they're feeling the way they're feeling can sometimes in and of itself reduce kind of the anxiety related to some of those feelings. What about a little bit of dark chocolate or something with that? Would you be in support (laughs) of that? Just to kind of give you that endorphin hit a little bit. uh... I don't have any, I don't have any trouble with that if if they can tolerate it. Okay. Okay. And it's, and it doesn't create a cascade of, of, you know, overeating, overconsuming. Yeah. You, you spoke about intuitive eating uh, and how that's probably bad advice for the majority of human beings, (laughs) uh, especially ladies who are menstruating, but do you, uh, if you think about how you eat, do you calorie count? Do you are you very mindful of your calorie expenditure and consumption on any given day, or is that not something you have to worry about now? 
I don't count and track. I, first of all, I don't really have time. (laughs) I'm super busy. And just the idea of counting and tracking like gives me (laughs) another added level of stress. (laughs) So unless I have a very, very, very specific, you know, goal or something in mind, I really don't, don't count and track. Um, I've gotten to a point now where, um, you know, I can look at portions of meat. I don't have to weigh them or anything like that, but that's been one of the greatest parts for me is I've tried lots of different diets and this has been the one way of living that has allowed me to not be so, you know, precise with counting and tracking. I think traditional dieting, when I was just trying calorie restriction, I call it like white knuckle. You know, I'm just Mm -hmm. like trying to get through the day, like don't eat any more calories, don't eat any more calories. But what I found with this lifestyle is the higher levels of protein and fat are so satiating. I just have less cravings. You know, I'm not necessarily eating intuitively. Don't get me wrong. I have cravings all the time for foods that I know are horrible for me, but, um, it is a very easy, sustainable lifestyle where you don't necessarily have to count and track. Now, if you're not seeing the results you want to see, then maybe you do need to count and track and be honest with yourself about what you, you know, are consuming. But for me, I really haven't had to. And that's, that's been a huge advantage for me. Yeah, I found for me personally that, you know, I've, I've been a diligent count and tracker for the last couple of years, I had very specific body, body composition goals, both muscle mass and, and cyclically losing, losing fat. Um, and so I've got myself into the habit and it, you know, once you do it and you eat consistently, it's not actually that difficult, but I can understand it's an added stress. But the last couple of months I've, I've just not done it and nothing's changing just because there is that consistency and that comfort in the food I'm eating is, is good for me. It's in support of my goals. And as you say, it's, it's hard to go over the top, but I do think personally for me, if I wanted to put weight on right now, I could, because even though fat and protein is satiating, I can, I can still force it down. Maybe that's just the Greek in me. Maybe it's just the, you know, the, the, the relationship I have with food. But I feel I could put weight on if I, for example, like when we have a, really, we have a big meal on Saturday and Sunday, so we normally make it like an OMAD day. But I could have another meal in the evening or I could have a breakfast. Um, I don't because I know it's probably not the right move, but I could eat more food. Do you not, do you not worry that, sometimes those kind of signals are a little bit off around, you know, hunger and the need for more food. Well, I think they're off because, you know, when you think about ancestrally, if we had to run around on the plains of Nebraska and kill a buffalo ourselves, right, we were limited in in our food sources. But in today's day and age, you know, we have a pantry and we have a fridge and there's something on every corner and we have all of these other things that are hijacking our satiety. And that's why I think that it's very hard to tell like a woman to eat intuitively because Mm -hmm. there's a break room at work and there's, there's just food everywhere. It's like the sensory overload. Um, I could easily overconsume, but for me, I, I'm very motivated internally, you know, as to why I I live this way. And I don't see food as entertainment. I see food as nutrition and and fuel for my body. And so some of it, I think, is just changing kind of that mindset too with with how you eat and how you're connected to food. It's interesting in the ketogenic space in particular, I see a lot of people who have come from a history of eating disorders, you know, and have found um, 
kind of a cure with a ketogenic way of living and and whether it's just fixing that relationship with food or what it is i you know i can't necessarily say but um i, I think that could be some of it too mm. yeah i think it's definitely habit as well it's the habit of have, normally having a breakfast normally having a dinner normally having snacks and you you can cut them away and not necessarily need the food but there, there can sometimes be that pull that kind of psychological pull that i normally eat at this time i think that's definitely big for me i, I notice when i decide to not eat a meal because I know I don't need it today. And yet there's something inside of me saying, oh, just go on, go on. <laughs> just have <laughs> That <anyway."> little voice, <laughs> that little voice on your shoulder. Absolutely. This has been fantastic. Really has been, Jamie. Um, uh, we kind of what, hit a, quite a, a few things, but I wanted to just give you the mic for another minute or so. Is there anything that you wish I would have covered in, in the realms of low carb, the health, and specifically the value of low carb and keto for women? No, I think that um, people just need to open their minds. There's lots of different approaches. And at the end of the day, whatever makes you feel the best and gives you normal biomarkers and normal body composition is what's right for you. Do not be, uh, people are, are just, it's information overload out there on the interwebs and in your doctor's office and all these different places and just be your own expert. Okay. And that's not the same as intuitive eating. No, that is not the same <laughs> as intuitive eating because I ate intuitively through all my pregnancies and it included milkshakes and cereal and <laughs> all sorts of horrible foods. My wife uh, started eating um, sponge at one point, you know, like the sponge you clean your body with. Uh, oh, she, yeah. yeah. She had, she had one of those kind of weird um, cravings. And at some point I think charcoal got into the mix as well. So yeah, that's probably not the right level of intuitive eating we're talking about. Yeah, probably a probably a mineral deficiency. That's when that's called pica. We see that women that eat dirt or I had a I had a patient that was eating boxes of baking soda during her pregnancy. Wow. Usually it's due to some sort of mineral deficiency. Yeah, I, I remember walking into the into the toilet one time and she's just like biting down on the sponge, not eating it, just like biting it. I'm like, "What are you doing?" She's like, "Uh." <laughs> She actually bought herself some extra sponges to put in, in into the toilet for when she needs it. So funny, she's going to hate me for saying this. <laughs> and, <laughs> She'll um, forgive you. And just uh, tying a bow around this, there there is a fantastic book called Deep Nutrition by Dr. Kate Shanahan that um, talks, I think, really eloquently about the connection of nutrition and the importance of it when you are, you know, looking to conceive when you're pregnant and during those first few years of, of, of child, a child's development. Have you read that book, Jamie? Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it front to back, but I've, I've looked at bits and pieces of it. And it just, I think it just talks a, a, a lot of what you're saying. So um, hopefully uh, the ladies can check that out as well. Fantastic, Jamie. Um, do you just want to give us a moment just to, you know, plug your, your social handles and anything else you've got going on at the minute that people should want to check out? Yeah. So people can find me on social media, Dr. Fit and Fabulous on both Instagram and Facebook. And I've got a website, drfitandfabulous.com. I'll be speaking at a few different places this coming year. And I love connecting with people. So don't be afraid to say hi. And am I right in saying that you're, you're, um, you've got a modeling uh, gig or, or pursuit over the next year or so? <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, there's... Um, Stay tuned. I um, recorded on a TV show this year um, that I can't talk about uh, all the details yet, but stay tuned for that. I'm running for 
Mrs. Nebraska um, coming up here in April. So doing lots of, wow. of fun things that are outside my box and just uh, challenging myself in new ways. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? You, you're standing up for intelligent women, professional women, and also for the keto low carb movement as well. I think it's um, it's powerful stuff. I love it. Yeah, I have three. I have three daughters, so it's important for me to kind of set the example that muscles are, it's okay for women to have muscles. It's okay for women to be smart and to be leaders. So that's kind of been my crusade here for 2020. I love it. I love it. Well, keep on doing what you're doing in 2020. I I, I will uh, watch you with an anticipation to see how everything progresses, both your following and your reach, your impact. And uh, please keep in touch. And yeah, I, I hope that everyone enjoys this conversation. And if you've got any questions about this and you want to get in touch with me or Jamie, Jamie, I'll suggest they'll get in, in touch with us through adaptnation.io's website and we'll forward on any comments they have. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Steve. Enjoy the rest of your week. Take care, Jamie. You too. I told you it'd be a good one. Jamie is the best and she is fantastic on Instagram and Facebook. So do make sure you check her out at Dr. Fit and Fabulous. And if you like this discussion and you want to dig a little deeper, then let me recommend you something. I have spent the last couple of years both interviewing people and doing tons of research to codify my understanding of what it takes to be your best, to live your best life and have the most energy, vitality. And nutrition, of course, plays a significant part, but so does appropriate rest and calmness, so does exercise, so does mindset, life habits, your physique, all these things absolutely matter. But trying to piece this all together for yourself can take a hell of a lot of time. There's so much confusion, there's so much misinformation, it is a bit of a maze. So if you want to get a fast track view into what it takes to be your best, I would highly recommend that you check out the Be Your Best journey. I'll put a link in the show notes. It is something that I've labored over. I believe it is truly of value to most people, whether you are already optimizing your life or need that reboot. It starts slow and it builds over a course of 100 days. I'm incredibly proud of it. The feedback has been phenomenal so far and I hope you enjoy it. So if you want a guided tour of everything that I've learned and everything that we stand for at Adaptation, the Be Your Best journey is absolutely something that I think can help. So go check it out. Let me know what you think. And until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.